0: Good morning. My name is Stephen, and I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. And I am so glad to be here with you. And I'm so glad that you are here this morning. As we start a new year, 2024, we are going to do a short series on our mission and vision as a church. And this is something that we've done in the past. We're going to continue to do that this year. And so through this short series, you'll hear from each one of us as pastors about the mission of Fellowship Church. And so we thought this year we would focus on that. What is our mission? What are we, as a fellowship, as a people of God, about? What is our purpose? What's our mission? And today, my part in that, starting this off, is to talk about the church in general. What is the role of the church? Why do we do this? Why do we gather? Why are we a, a, a thing, an organization? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so, as we turn to God's word, would you pray with me? We would ask that God would use his word to illuminate uh, to our hearts and to our minds his truth. So, let's pray together. Lord, you are good, and you are the author and the completer of our faith. You are the one who has given us the gift of the church and called us into it. And so, Lord, we pray this morning as we gather as your people who've been called by your name, who proclaim Christ as Lord, that you would come and be among us, that you would be glorified in us. Spirit of God, would you illuminate your word to us, that as we spend time worshiping you by focusing on what your word says, that it would transform us, that our eyes would be turned to you, and that we would be transformed to be more like the image of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the long-running TV show, This Old House, has a website, and on their website, they have this wonderful and crazy section called Home Inspection Nightmares. If, If you're sitting at home this afternoon, you don't have anything better to do, check it out. Google it. This Old House, Home Inspection Nightmares. So real pictures from real home inspectors where they go to places and they take photos of truly, truly terrifying stuff. So I have a couple of examples here. This, if you can't see it, that is a uh, an electrical outlet duct taped to a steel post, uh, with uh, you know complete with exposed wires. You can go to the next one. This, so that is a dryer plug, hardwired directly to the conduit. I should say at this point. Do not attempt these at home, right? <laughs> There's a reason these are nightmares. So just, just in case these are not all electrical, you can go to the next one. So that's a, a steel support beam. And instead of, you know, I don't know, a bolt, I'll just uh, jam a few uh, nails in there to hold that in place. The home inspector said, you know, surprising that it's kind of wobbly. It's not very stable. All right, one more, my personal favorite. This is a cigar box as a junction box. So I guess it's a box. Um, yeah, interesting stuff there. And there are dozens and dozens of these. Trust me, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at these, and you can do that as well. But those are some of my favorite ones. The reason I share that with you is because when, when we use things for a purpose that they are not intended for, bad things can happen. I mean, I'm surprised at looking at these, that all of these houses didn't like burn down. Um, there are problems, there are issues when the way something is designed is not the way that it's used. When we don't understand the function of something, then it can cause problems. So if you use a cigar box for, I don't know, storing cigars, no problem. But if you use it for hot electrical wires, you have an issue. Now this is true, not just in terms of home inspections. This is also true in terms of the church. If we don't understand the function and the role of the church, then we may do things that we're not supposed to be doing and neglect to do other things that we are supposed to be doing. And so that's what we want to talk about together this morning as we start this short series on the mission of our church. We want to talk about the role of the church. What is the role of the church in the world? God designed this thing called the church. It has a purpose. It has a function. What function is that? Can we answer that question? Could you write down right now and say, the church is for, and then list out a succinct answer? What function has God given us as his gathered people in this age? You think we ought to know that, right? We say we are a church. We we should know what our function is. So that's what we want to look at today from God's word. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn with me, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. So Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. All right, so let's set the scene. We're kind of jumping into this passage from the gospel of Matthew. So set the scene. So Matthew tells us that they came to a place called Caesarea Philippi. What you have to understand about this place is that it's basically the edge of what we would call Jewish territory. This is the edge of the uh, Israelite land at that time. And they're going into an area that was very pagan and it was known for that. And so you can kind of picture them. They're kind of walking. They go to this place. You know, they're kind of high up on a mountain, and they could kind of look out, and they're looking out at this whole pagan land full of Gentiles. Now, for, for this group of Jewish believers, they, that's a place they don't want to go, because anywhere they go there, anything they touch, they're going to be unclean, and this is not a good place. So they're right here on this edge, this boundary, in this unclean place. They're looking out, and Jesus asked this probing questions, as he so often does. He says, who do people say that I am? And so they have kind of this discussion. They say, well, you know, some say this, some say that, others say this. You know, they're kind of just surveying the whole ground of what people think about who Jesus is. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you declare my identity to be? So note, this is a discussion about the message. It's about the proclamation of who Jesus is. All the other things that people mentioned, He's like, oh, a good prophet, or maybe he's Elijah come back, or John the Baptist come back. But this is a question. What is the message to the disciples? Who do you say that I am? And so in answer to that question, Simon Peter responds. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The word Christ there, it's just the, the Greek word for the Hebrew concept of Messiah, the anointed one, the one that they were waiting for, the one who would deliver them. They recognized that this Jesus, this man standing in front of them, their rabbi was the Messiah, the chosen one, the son of the living God. It's an amazing proclamation. And Jesus is like, yes, you got it. Look at what he says. He says to Peter after this proclamation, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Jesus confirms this is the true message This is who he is. All right. So I know this morning, you know, it's the first Sunday of the new year. It's snowy outside. Maybe you had to get up extra early to brush off your car. Here we are together. But in order to understand this passage of Scripture, we're going to have to go through a lot of definitions, okay? So this is a little risky. On a Sunday morning, maybe you have, I hope you've had enough coffee uh, this morning, but just stick with me, okay? Are you with me this morning? We can go through some definitions. Because this is a passage of Scripture, I think, is a little bit tricky to understand. And so I want to go through and define quite a few things as we move down through this text that will help us to understand what Scripture is getting at here. All right, so as so we move into verse 18, Jesus makes this statement. And I tell you, he's talking to Peter. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the, key, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Is that clear? You go, yeah, that makes, I know exactly what all those things are. Well, we're going to define them. So the first thing we have to talk about is when he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, there's been a lot of debate about this passage of scripture over the years. Theologians, scholars, pastors, there's two things you need to know right off the bat in terms of this passage of scripture. First is that the name Peter sounds like the Greek word for rock. So this is clearly Jesus giving a play on words. It's harder to see that because we're translating it into English and there's, those are different. So there's a play on words. The other thing you need to know is that the two forms, the two words that are used there are not exactly the same. So the first one is Petros. That's how it would be said in Greek. That's Peter. That's where you get the name from. You can see the connection. And the second one is Petra, which is the Greek word for rock. So you see how they're close together, but they're not exactly the same. So it's a play on words. Now, when Jesus says this, he has an intention, When he says, on this rock, I will build my church, he has a purpose. He has an intention. He's not just saying things for the fun of it, and it's not recorded in Scripture just so we can say, well, that's a nice saying. I wonder what he means. Jesus has a point. Jesus has an intention. We need to figure out what that intention is. That's where the interpretation comes in. Now, there's two possible ways of looking at this statement from Scripture, That one is that when he says this rock, he means Peter, the man. The other option is that he means the message, the proclamation that Peter just gave. So those are the two options. Now, as we look at both of those, there's pros and cons for either of those. Whether this rock means Peter or whether this rock means his proclamation. So the first one, the excuse me, the problem with it being Peter is that Jesus doesn't say I call you Peter, and on you, Peter, I will build my church. He could have said that, but he doesn't say that. He says, this rock. There's also the issue that when Jesus says this, it comes right after Peter's proclamation. Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that the disciples have really got who Jesus was. They've been following him, he's been teaching them, but finally they're like, oh yeah, we get it. So it comes right after his proclamation. So it doesn't seem to make total sense that he's just talking about the man, Now, there's problems with the other interpretation. If you just say, well, this rock means the message, the proclamation, then there's the issue that Jesus' statement here is a statement about Peter's identity. Notice it parallels uh, Peter's statement about Jesus' identity. So Peter says to Jesus, who are you? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus responds and tells Peter a statement about Peter's identity, Notice he even mentioned there's parallel there. So it's a statement about Peter's identity. So when you look at the, that parallel and that declaration, <clears throat> you have some issues with both of those. So which one is it? Is it the man or is it the message? Here's the thing. Like is so often the case with these things in scriptures, I believe it's actually both. That's why there's, a, there's the difficulty in narrowing it to one or the other. It is both the man and his message. Because it's Peter because he's the one who proclaimed. If all of the disciples had said the same thing, then I think Jesus would have said it about all of them. But Peter is the one who says it. It's the profession and the professor, the one who's making the statement. It is the commissioned person and the entrusted message together. Now, note that Jesus goes on to, to highlight specifically, he kind of takes pains, that this is not Peter's idea. He's not like, oh, Peter, I'm glad you came up with that. That's an interesting thought. Nobody's ever thought about that before. That's not what he says. He says, Peter, this did not come from you. Flesh and blood did not give this to you. This is the message from my father in heaven. So whose message is it? God's. Peter is proclaiming the message that he received, that he was given by the Spirit of God. He has been chosen, because remember, Peter was called by Jesus to be a disciple. Jesus says, come follow me. Be my disciple. Be my messenger. So he's a commissioned messenger with a received message. And that, I believe, is what Jesus is saying. This is the rock. It's the man who was commissioned, and the message that was given. Both of those came from God. Peter didn't decide to follow Jesus, he was called. Peter didn't come up with the message, God gave it to him. So Peter is a commissioned disciple with a message that was once for all given that he was to go and to proclaim to others. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like anything you've heard about? Interesting that right after this, Jesus starts talking about his church. Look what scripture says. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, when we look at that word church, another thing we have to define This is an important word, I think we recognize, but also really rare in the Gospels. You would say, okay, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how many times do you think the word church comes up? Like, (laughs) a lot, right? I mean, it's Scripture. It's the New Testament. It's got to be in there all the time. In all of the four Gospels, the word church is used a total of three times. And all of them are in the Gospel of Matthew. Once here... Two times in Matthew 18 that we're going to look at in a second. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. The word church is rare. So when it comes up here, we we just kind of gloss over it. Oh, yeah, we're talking about church and church. Surprise. But it's unique. It's rare. It's significant. It's important. The church, what this word means, it means an assembly, a gathering, a community or a congregation. So Jesus says, I will build my assembly, my gathered people, my community, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the church, this gathering, this people, so there's a commissioned people and a given message. Now, we have to take some time. Like I said, I warned you ahead of time, there's a lot of definitions here, okay? So stick with me. We have to look at this. Gates of hell. What does that mean? You just re- Again, you can just read over and go, I don't know what that means. But again, there's intention in Scripture. So what does it mean? Now, likely, your Bible has a footnote. A little number or a little letter that kind of at the, the, the end of that word. And it corresponds to a note at the bottom of the page. Can I just tell you, those are really important. I know they're in tiny types. So if you have bad eyes, you might need a magnifying glass. They're Just because they're tiny doesn't mean they're not important. They're very important. Those footnotes are very important. I would encourage you, don't overlook them. If you want to understand what Scripture is saying, look at those footnotes. Because, unfortunately, in English, our convention is to use the English word hell to translate two different words and two different ideas in the original Greek, which is confusing. But that's our convention. And those two words are the word Hades and the word Gehenna. Two different things. So Gehenna comes from the, the, the word, the Valley of Hinnom. It was a place in Israel, and it's a burning garbage heap. And it's used as a metaphor, an image for the eternal fire. So it's a picture they would get, this burning garbage heap, that then equates to this eternal place of fire, which is what we typically think of when we read the word hell, or we think about that concept. So you could look, for example, at Matthew 18, 9, where it talks about the eternal fire. That's the word Gehenna. Probably the best we think about that, we think about traditionally like what we would think of hell. Then there's this other word, Hades. It's a little more confusing, a little bit different of a concept for us. Hades is the place of the dead. This is a Greek word, Greek concept. In the Greek thinking, it's the underworld. You know, you have the Greek culture, they have all these gods, they have this whole idea about what creation is like, and they have this idea there's an underworld, the place of the dead, and that's the word they use for it. Scripture is talking about the, really this idea of, in Hebrew, the word sheol, if you've ever heard that in Scripture, which means death or the grave, So this is death, the place of the dead, the grave. So here, when Jesus says this, he uses the word Hades. So specifically, he's talking about the gates of Hades. What does that mean? What's interesting, because there's actually a place in Caesarea Philippi, where they are. There's a cave that there was pagan worship there. The pagan people, remember we said this was a pagan area, Gentile area, they worshipped the god of Pan there and other gods, and there was this cave that went underground, and they believed that was the entrance to the underworld. And they believed that the, the spirits of fertility and that stuff, they would come out, they would go in there in the winter, come out in the spring, and they literally called this place the Gates of Hades. This is the entrance to the underworld. Interesting that here Jesus is at that place, and he says, I will build my church, and the gates of the place of death, the forces of death, will not prevail against it. So when we read this, I think it's best to think of it not like we would typically think of, like, oh, the gates of hell, but the powers and forces of death. The power of death. Now, think about that in context of the gospel. What is the gospel? The message that Jesus Christ, God Himself in the flesh, lived a sinless life, died on the cross as a ransom for many, was buried, three days, rose from the grave, and defeated death. He is alive, never to die again. And all who are joined with Him will also go through death and be raised, never to die again. That's the message. That's the message of the church. It's not surprising that he's talking about it that way. In fact, this is precisely the context of Matthew 16. If you look at the next verses, the next section, starting in verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. you can continue on he talks to the disciples about they will have to follow in the way of Christ take up their cross which is what an instrument of death so the message connects with overcoming the forces of death so when he says that he's talking about specifically these forces of death the power of death that he is going to break okay got that? We're not quite done with definitions. I told you there were a lot. We have some more things to define as we go through this passage of Scripture. So Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, it's important to notice that when Jesus mentions the church, whose church is it? Whose authority is it? He says, I will build my church. It's his church. It's not Peter's church. It's not our church. Who's building it? Are we building it? No, Christ is building it. And then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, keys of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Now, I would guess most of us in this room probably have some keys. You probably have keys in your pocket, maybe keys in your purse, right? We all carry keys around. Now, they're pretty common for us, less common in that time, but keys typically do what? Lock and unlock, open and shut. But he says, keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this phrase, kingdom of heaven, is used 32 times in the book of Matthew. So compare that. Church is used three times. Kingdom of heaven, 32 times. And it doesn't simply just mean what we think of when we think of heaven. Or more precisely, what we call our eternal home. When we read that, we shouldn't just think, oh, that's that place that we're going to when we die. The other gospel writers tend to use the term kingdom of God. And they're talking about the same thing, the same idea. This refers to God's kingdom, which is here in part already now. And those who belong to Christ belong to his kingdom now and forever. We have been transferred from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of God. So it's not just specifically talking about heaven, our final home. So don't read it that way. It's talking about this kingdom that we as believers in Christ, when we put our faith in Jesus, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. That's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Now, if you don't believe me, you can look up Matthew 13, 31. And Jesus is telling parables about the kingdom of heaven. And if you just think that the kingdom of heaven just means heaven, you would have to believe that it's just going to get bigger. It's a place that's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Because that's what Jesus says there. But it's talking about this kingdom, this place that we live. So when, when Jesus says to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he is not giving us this character that you've probably seen the cartoons. Peter at the pearly gates into you know, the clouds and there's a gate behind him, and he's got a podium like this, maybe a checklist, and somebody's standing there. That is not at all what he's talking about because it's not talking about that place. It is talking about entrance into the people of God, transferred from bondage to sin and death to alive to God. That's what he's talking about. So don't just take that whole picture out of your mind, all those cartoons that you've seen. That's not at all what he's talking about. When he says keys of the kingdom, he's talking about something very different so what does it mean that there's a commissioned assembly of people a group who've been commissioned and sent they have a message and Jesus is delegating some authority He's saying I'm giving you the keys you know, think about maybe you had this experience when you were a younger person your parents came to you and said here's the keys to the house here's the keys to the car you're like woohoo i have some authority I have some responsibility. So what is that that Jesus is delegating to this commissioned community? What does it mean to have the keys of the kingdom? When we have these questions in scripture, you've heard me say this before. You'll hear me say it again. We wonder about it. Just keep reading because the Bible explains itself. So I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven so having the keys of the kingdom what does it mean it means binding and loosing jesus is defining what he's telling them and it's defined by this idea of binding and loosing and you go great but what does that mean What does it mean? I mean, I thought keys opened and shut, locked and unlocked. What does it mean to bind and loose? Well, the first thing we have to see as we look at that is it doesn't say open and close. That's not what Jesus says. He could have said that, but that's not what he says. He says to bind and to loose. What are those? He also says whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Now think about that. It's a little surprising, right? Because you would think it would go the other way. Like heaven to earth. Whatever is happening in heaven, then it would happen on earth. Like the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the other way around. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Surprising. Strange. This delegation of authority is significant. Also, it's important to understand that this happens, this binding and loosing um, is a a phrase that Jesus uses in another place. So I think it'll be helpful for us to understand that if we look uh, ahead a few chapters of Scripture. This is uh, in Matthew 18, so we're going to turn there for a second. So Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus is talking. I'm going to read this. This is a little bit longer section, but just follow along. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Notice this is the other passage of Scripture, the other gospel, the other place in all the gospels, where the word church is used twice. Now, the context of that is what we would call church discipline. He's talking about if you have conflict in the church, how do you work it out? But then in response to that, he uses this phrase again, binding and loosing. So what does that specifically mean? Well, author and pastor, Jonathan Lehman, has some helpful information on this, uh, he's really kind of a, an expert in ecclesiology and the doctrine of the church. And as he looks at this passage, he says, well, if we look at binding and loosing, there's a couple of things. One, it involves, in this context, at least the idea of putting somebody out of the church, church discipline, where a person says, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Okay, then you have to follow him. Well, I'm not going to follow him. I'm not going to do anything he says. I'm just going to keep sinning, keep living like I haven't been freed from sin, and I'm just going to keep doing that. And there's conflict. He gives, Jesus gives us the example of what you should do. If there's not repentance, if there's not turning, then that person should be treated. Notice he's talking to a Jewish audience. You treat them like an outsider, like a Gentile, like a tax collector. You excommunicate them from the church. You put them out. This happens. Rarely, but occasionally it does happen. It's a big deal for a gathered assembly of people to say to someone by your failure to repent, by your willful continuing in sin, we are no longer going to uh, recognize you as a part of this community. That's what he's talking about. So this context, binding and loosing, means at least that, to make that judgment. Now, if you look at what binding and loosing is, it means a thing and its opposite, right? Binding and loosing are opposites. So if it means putting somebody out of the church, we could also then see that it means bringing somebody in. That would be the opposite, right? Of putting somebody out, bringing someone in. And what is binding? Think about it this way. Laws are binding. Covenants are binding. Judgments are binding. They have an authority. They have a purpose. Lehman goes on with this definition of what this phrase means. He says, the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose are the authority to render judgments on behalf of heaven, on earth, on the what and the who of the gospel. The profession, which is the what, and the professor, the who. That is, what the true message is is, And who the true believer is. That's what this means. To have the keys of the kingdom, to have the authority to bind and loose, is that the church has the authority to declare this is the true message and these are the true people who believe it. And notice, that's actually the exact thing that Jesus was doing with Peter in Matthew 16. Jesus renders a judgment, a positive judgment. On Peter and on his declaration. It's also interesting a few verses later, Jesus renders a negative judgment on Peter against something Peter says. That's that passage of scripture, get behind me, Satan. When when Peter takes Jesus aside and said, No, no, Jesus, you're not gonna die. That's not that's not what your purpose is. And Jesus says, That's not correct. That's a message from Satan. That is a negative binding judgment. This is exactly what Jesus is doing here. Another important thing to notice from chapter 18 is that here in this passage, Jesus has expanded the binding and loosing to the church. In Matthew 16, when he's talking to Peter, it's a singular you. He says you, singular. Here in 18, he says you plural. If it was northeast PA, he'd say yous You have the keys of the kingdom. It's the group. He's expanded it. Notice he talks about two or three gathered in my name. All of these things relate to the gathered body of Christ, the church. This group of people commissioned to carry out the message. They have, we have this authority. So the church has the authority to say, yes, that is the faith once for all handed down the church has the authority to say yes that person belongs to the kingdom of heaven and this is what we do as a church this is why we have a doctrinal statement that is our declaration this is the true faith this is the message not that we made up not that we came up with this fellowship church or the Evangelical Free Church of America. We are saying this is the message that was handed down once for all to the apostles, down the generations that we now hand on to others. That's why we have a doctrinal statement. This is the gospel. This is the true faith. It's why we affirm members. We just had that. We had the Romans up here. We affirm them as members. These people belong to the kingdom of Christ. That's what a church does. By the way, that's a great reason to join the church if you have not. I know I've been a pastor for a number of years, talked to lots of people, have lots of reasons. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I've been here going here so long, never became a member. It's embarrassing now. Maybe say, oh, you know, I got hurt really bad. I understand those things pastor Orly, can I just say I get it I understand that but there are more important things at work the true gospel is at work here so when you join a church what your church is saying is you belong to the kingdom of Christ because you realize we don't ask people that when they come in the door anybody can come in here If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm glad you're here. You're welcome here. You should be here. But you're not a part of the kingdom of Christ. Sitting in that seat, walking in those doors, does not make you a part of the kingdom of Christ. We say you belong to the kingdom of Christ when you joined the church, when you're baptized. That's why we do those things, because we want to demarcate. We want to put that boundary and say, yes, these are the people who belong to the kingdom of Christ. Baptism is another example of that. In a few moments, Macy is going to be baptized, and we as a church are affirming that this young woman is a true confessor of the true faith. She belongs to Christ and his church. That's what we're saying. As a gathered body of believers. And guess what? When we do that, we have the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to do that. He gave it to us. It's his kingdom, his keys, and he's given them to us. That's what we're doing as a church. Now, clarification. This does not mean that when Macy in a few minutes is is being baptized, that in that moment she becomes a part of the kingdom. That's not what we're saying. She already is a part of the kingdom of Christ. It's not as though when she goes into the tank under here that, oh, now she is. No, she already is a part of the kingdom of Christ. We're confirming it. This is a symbol, an expression of her faith. She's already been joined with Christ, united in his death and resurrection. We're confirming it. It's a symbol of that. Lehman again is here, helpful. He gives the example. It's like a judge in a duly constituted court. If you go to court, the judge has authority to render binding judgments. Guilty, not guilty. That's what judges do. They have that authority. Now judges, they do not make the law. They interpret the law. They make the binding judgment based on the law. In fact, the judge doesn't even make the person guilty or innocent. The person is already guilty or innocent. That's a reality. The judge is making a binding statement about guilt or innocence, and it makes, it makes a difference. It means something. When a judge says guilty or innocent, it's different than, say, a law professor sitting in their classroom talking about a case and saying, well, this is what I think. I think, according to this, that the law says that this person is guilty or innocent. A law professor can do that. They could be very informed. They could be correct. But it does not have the same binding effect as a judge in a duly constituted court. Because they have that authority. So think about that for a minute. All this stuff. All these definitions that we've been talking about. To understand this passage of Scripture. What does it mean? Think about this. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, has given his church his authority to render binding judgments on the what and the who of the gospel. That's our function. That's our role. That's why we exist. That's why we do what we do. And we don't just do that through membership and baptism, although those are big parts of it. We also do it through preaching of God's word. Why do we take all this time to go through all these definitions to understand this message? Because we want to be faithful to the true message. Why do we practice church discipline? To confront one another when we sin. Why do you say, oh, well, God's grace, who cares what you do? Because God has given us this authority to, do, to make the binding judgment who is and who is not a part of the kingdom of Christ. It's why we do evangelism. Because if we don't have any idea who is in and who is out, or there's no definition of who's in the kingdom and who's not in the kingdom, why would we proclaim a message? We evangelize because we recognize that there are people who are not in the kingdom of Christ. And we want them to come into the kingdom of Christ. And God has given us authority to do that. It's why we practice the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are expressions of this reality. The church in this way has a priestly role. We are a kingdom of priests, as scripture says. The church is to demarcate the what and the who of the kingdom, to render judgments on earth on behalf of heaven about what the true faith is, And who is a part of the kingdom of Christ? The church has been given the keys of the kingdom. And Jesus does not say, I will give you the sword. And Jesus does not say, I will give you the rod of iron. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose, to make clear what is the faith and who belongs to Christ. And to make those judgments with the full authority of heaven. The Son of Man, the Son of David, the King of Kings, gives his church this role and this function. Now, there's one more thing from this passage of Scripture you may be wondering about. And that is why, because at the end of this, verse 20, does Jesus command his disciples not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah? Isn't that surprising? You ever read that and you're like, what is going on? Isn't he just commending Peter? Like, Peter, yes, this is my message. This is what you're supposed to do. And he says, by the way, don't tell anybody. Why does he do that? Aren't we supposed to be telling people? Yes, yes, we are. But here, Jesus is telling his disciples not to tell anyone because their understanding of what the Messiah was is still deficient. They don't really get it. They'd come to the point of realizing who he is, but they didn't yet get his mission. You can continue reading to see that. Immediately he starts teaching them: is it, okay, you guys got this? Yes, I'm the Messiah. Okay, good. We finally got to that point. Now let me tell you what I'm gonna do. You know, they would have been thinking, yeah, oh, this is gonna be great. Son of David, he's going to come kill all of our enemies that we're going to rule. And by the way, we got it on the ground floor. That's why they're always asking him, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? They're not thinking about heaven. They're thinking about his administration when he starts, you know, wiping people out. That's what they expect. Son of David, I mean, that's what David did, right? David and Goliath. he killed a lot of people. And he tells them, no, I'm going And they're going to put me to death. That's why Peter's like, no, Jesus, Jesus, you got this all wrong. That can't be the mission. Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. That is the mission. They didn't understand. So he needs them to understand first. So he says, don't tell anybody about this. We have more learning to do. So. You get to the end when he has done that. He has gone to the cross. He's offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. He has died and been raised to new life, never to die again. And then he sends them out. Flip ahead to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus said, this is the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Once he had done that work, once they had finally understood, then he says, Go and tell everyone, make disciples. This is the Great Commission. But what's the connection between the Great Commission and demarcating the what and the who of the gospel? Well, how can we proclaim and baptize and teach disciples unless we know the what and the who? We have to know what the message is before we can proclaim it. We have to know who the disciples are before we can teach them to follow all that Jesus has commanded. So here we are fellowship church at 45 hildebrandt road in dallas pennsylvania in the year 2024 the question is do we have that same authority do we as a church have this authority that god has given and the answer is a resounding yes this is our role this is our function today and this year And for however long God has us here. The forces of death are at work out there. In here, in kids' church, there are kids learning about Jesus Christ. We're making a way for kids to come to Christ As a fellowship, there are people who are learning to obey all that God has commanded. Say, oh, I need to turn from those things and start doing what God has commanded. There are missionaries who are going out. There are people who are proclaiming the gospel in their schools, in their workplaces, in their homes, in their families. We say Christ is the Lord. He is who he said he is. He did what he said he would do. And he will do what he said he's going to do so my encouragement to you is don't forget don't forget that important role don't abdicate that role don't lose heart this is what we're about and in just a few minutes we're going to get a chance to do that we are baptizing one of our own declaring she belongs to christ and his church what a wonderful thing we can do aren't you glad you're here this morning to be a part of that Let's pray. Lord, you have given us a commission. You've given us a role to to demarcate the what and the who of the gospel. But help us to do that faithfully. Help us to rejoice in that as we see what is taking place. What a joy that we can be a part of it. We thank you that you've called us into your kingdom. Help us to be faithful to this purpose, faithful to this role, today, and in 2024, and until you return. Give us the strength to do it, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.